frankly, when we laid the story out to juries and showed them what decisions were being made by who and when, the fact that, for example, I think, as you mentioned, you know, you had this meeting in 1984 where folks were aware that this stuff was getting out into people's drinking water. It was toxic. It could build up. It was a problem chemical. There were potential alternatives they could have switched to at that point. The concern being, of course, you know, they they were going to start increasing potentially production because it was the products were selling well. That was a decision point where people could have made a very different decision. And the ultimate decision was made, no, let's keep using it. In fact, let's not only keep using it, let's increase our emissions and actually pump more of it into the environment. And not only that, you know, that happened throughout the 1990s, even at the point where the 3M company, who had been the maker of the chemical and selling it to DuPont, when they finally pulled the plug and said, we're not going to make this anymore. Again, the company could have made the same decision and said, oh, this is not environmentally sound. You know, there are problems. We need to be switching to these alternatives, which we had identified decades ago. No. Instead, they saw it as a market opportunity to jump in and be the supplier now of that chemical. And they did. They started making it themselves in North Carolina and started pumping even more out. And now they weren't just a user. They were also the manufacturer. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Your blood contains PFOA, also known as forever chemicals. They cause cancer of several types, birth defects, and more. DuPont and other companies produced this stuff for decades, for generations, after learning it caused this kind of harm and dumped it into our environment. As best we can tell, they chose enormous profits over the health of their employees at first, eventually their communities, eventually all Americans, and all humans. Actually, all animal life, I understand, because this stuff takes millions of years to break down and accumulates in our bodies. We know in part because today's guest, Robert Billot, took on a small farmer's case where his cows were dying from water poison from DuPont dumping these chemicals next door to him. He, Robert, pulled on the thread and the whole sweater unraveled. His story became on par with those in the movies Aaron Brockovich and A Civil Action. The highly reviewed 2019 movie Dark Waters featured Mark Ruffalo, Anne Hathaway, and Tim Robbins playing Robert Balot, his wife, and his co-worker. The New York Times featured him in its 2016 magazine article, The Lawyer Who Became DuPont's Worst Nightmare. It's a fantastic article, and there are plenty others that I'll link to. The most personal account is his 2019 book, Exposure. Read and watch all of the above, especially his book, for the history and his view. In our conversation, I tried to bring out what many of us could use, I think, most. What is it like to face something that we feel is right, to fix a great problem, to act on our values, even when it seems like we'll have to swim upstream to do it? Do we do it or not? Is it too much to sacrifice? Is it a sacrifice at all, or is it something that we benefit from? Because regarding sustainability in nature, we all sense how much easier swimming downstream would be. Or would it? In my experience, the more that I act, contrary to my initial expectations, the more that I act, the more I find new role models like him who make the choice I feel right more clear. Listen for yourself, and I recommend while listening to ask yourself, would you like to feel about your life and family and community and nation the way he feels about his? Could acting even when it's hard 
help. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Robert Ballot. Robert, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And I, I'm trying to remember how I first, I think I first read, read about the movie Dark Waters and watched that and then started reading and reading and reading all these articles and contacted you because the story is just absolutely, well, tragic that it would, we live in a world where it would happen, but that you did what you did is it's powerful, inspirational. And I'm very grateful that you've come here to share, to help share your story. I want to start off with something that hit me when I was reading your book after reading, after seeing the movie and so forth. And in a second, I'm going to ask you about if you can retell a little bit about the beginning, but I'm going to tell you what, something that really hit me. You, this farmer has come to speak to you. He's a friend of the family. You're thinking about, are you going to get involved with this? And you, I don't think you had any idea of the scope of what was to come, but it was something. And you said, I've seen a civil action. I saw Aaron Brockovich and did I really want to go down that path? And I felt like this is someone who you see that there's the potential to become a historical figure, but really hard work. It's going to be really hard. And that moment to me struck me as like, I think a lot of us are facing, could face that moment ourselves because there's a lot of, the environment is uh, facing a lot of issues. And a lot of us can face a moment like that. I wonder if you could should I have you ask if you don't mind starting from the beginning or maybe talk about that moment? Sure. You know, uh, this has been a, a long, uh, a long path, uh, you know, starting 22 years ago when Mr. Tennant picked up the phone and gave me a call. And, you know, at that point, like you say, I really had no idea that what he was going to ask me to get involved in would be something that would not only take this long, but be this big in scope. You know, even when I had the chance to finally sit down with Mr. Tennant and his wife and look at his videotapes and his photographs and really hear about the problems he was having, he and his family and the the animals and the wildlife in the area, uh, really see, see the scope of how that was impacting that family. You know, we made the decision at that point to take on that case for that family. We thought it was something we could help them with. This is the kind of thing I did as an environmental attorney, uh, help people get permits to run landfills like the landfill that was next to Mr. Tennant's property. But still at that point, really had no idea you know, that what we were going to be getting into would be something that went far beyond that family and that property. Uh, you know, we, we got to the point several years later after digging through all of these files and all of these documents and realizing, you know, this wasn't just Mr. Tennant and his family. It wasn't just that one farm or even just that one community along the Ohio River, the tens of thousands of Mr. Tennant's neighbors that were potentially being exposed to, to this chemical we had discovered. But this was something that was in the blood of everyone in the country and likely all over the world. So it, it, at that point, you know, we really started to least for me, recognize that this was a massive public health problem, not something we could simply sit back and assume somebody else is going to take care of this. Somebody else will make sure this is addressed. You know, this, I could see from the documents, it had been going on for decades. Nobody else was paying attention. Nobody else, frankly, even knew about it. It had been covered up. The information had been withheld. So really felt a responsibility even though we knew this was going to be a big undertaking 
particularly when we realized the scope of it and realized we would have to start a class action against one of the world's biggest chemical companies and uh, pursue uh, unique and new areas of the law that really hadn't been developed either. But it was the scope of the problem and the seriousness of that and realizing, you know, we, we might have been the only ones out there that had that information and really feeling a tie to not only Mr. Tennant, but that community. You know, my, my mom's entire family had been raised there. We would go there all the time when I was a kid. So to know this was happening there of all places and to be one of the feeling like you're the only person who has this information, uh, to me, it became a pretty easy a pretty easy decision to make, you know, but it was one that I realized I'm bringing my entire law firm uh, along on this decision as well. And, uh, you know, as this story played out, it, and uh, as you see in the book, Exposure, you know, I try to really highlight all the different things that had to align for this story to have played out the way it did. Not only the fact that my mom had been from Parkersburg, which prompted me to keep listening when Mr. Tennant called me and not hang up the phone. But that my boss, Tom Turp, happened to be in the office that day and be, was able to sit in and actually see these videos and that uh, he helped make that initial decision to take on the case, yet then became managing partner of the entire firm. You know, while we were undertaking this massive class action and the economy was imploding. So it was just a series of events like that that aligned for all of this to happen the way it did. But I'm, I'm, you know, looking back on it, I don't see how we could have, I could have made any other decision. It's funny because you, you, I mean, you could have said, well, look, I stick with the fence and there's a lot more money and you could have gone the safe route. And, and I think most people today are like, well, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and there's a lot of mercury in the groundwater. And I hope someone else takes care of it. And in retrospect, you couldn't, you say you couldn't have made any other decision, but I think most people would feel like, would like to think that they would make that decision. But I think the majority shy away from it. You could have, or it would have been so much easier for you to just you could have gotten a nicer car sooner. <laughs> well, you know, there were there were a number of points like that where we could have made a different decision, or I could have made a different decision. And you know, I tried to talk about those those decision points in my book as well. You know, where obviously the first the first time I decided to continue the call with Mr. Tennant. And then the decision to take on his case. And then once we were able to, to resolve the issue for Mr. Tennant and actually get him a settlement and resolve that for his family, we could have made the decision. So let's sit back. You know, I, uh, I had sent my letter to the US EPA providing as much information as I could to tell them what the problem was and, um, you know, to, to give them everything they needed to come in set drinking water standards, take action to protect the public health. We could have made the decision right then. We'd done enough. We've done everything we can. It's up to somebody else now. But, you know, I felt <laughs> that wasn't enough, uh, you know, particularly, again, because of where this was. This was Parkersburg. And the fact that I knew from looking at those documents that there was nobody else that had spent any time looking at this and, uh, you know, unless we, we kept at it and unless I kept giving the agencies more information and helping them see what I was seeing, it was unlikely anybody else was going to delve in and do this. And I just felt like that was something I needed to do based on what I had seen. And, and you know, frankly, hearing Mr. Tennant in the background, in, in you know, the back of my head, he was insistent 
that folks not get away with this, you know, that, that people be told what was happening. One of the most important things to him, you know, even after we were able to get this case resolved and settled for him was mm-hmm. what about my neighbors? You know, what about all the other people that are drinking this? What about everybody in the country that doesn't even know this is here? And I would sit back and hear that voice in the back of my head and realize, you know, again, there is only one decision we can make here. And I was fortunate to have partners at my law firm that when they heard these facts, agreed, this is bad. You know, you Mm -hmm. see that depicted in the film, Dark Waters, a a scene there where, you know, but that decision had to be made. And, you know, people looking at these facts realized, you know, this is not normal behavior. This, this is bad behavior. And, and we're, we have the ability to do something about it. And as lawyers, we should. And we did. So I'm, I'm proud that we did that. I don't know how many other law firms would have done that, frankly. There was more. I read in the book, and maybe it was because you writing it and, and the movie had to dramatize things. But it felt like the, in the book, you had more support from, the, from your law firm. And that seemed more clear. Whereas in the, in the movie, there was like, um, it seemed like there was more debate. But actually, I want to get to something a little more personal. And, and stop me if I get too personal. But you had three sons who grew up in this period and a wife. And you spent a lot of time away from them. But I believe that, see, when I was reading it, it made me think a lot about my nephews who are overseas, that I'm not flying. And I challenged myself to go for a year without flying several years ago. And it's improved my life. And that was for environmental reasons. But then the longer I've done it, the more I have found a great joy in not flying. Uh, Sorry, not in not flying, but in discovering local things. But I'm not seeing my nephews overseas. Nonetheless, they are in my heart more as a result of this. And I have a feeling that your family got closer for the support. I mean, I read a huge amount of emotion coming from you toward your wife for the support you got from her, even if you weren't spending time with her. And I imagined that that was two-way. You couldn't have known that that would definitely work out from the beginning. How did the decision, you talked about your work, you talked about tenant. You talked about the community. Were you afraid of how things might go with your wife, with your family? Did you feel closer to them? Did you feel farther from them? Am I asking two personal questions? No, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, I try, as you pointed out, I tried to discuss this in the book and just help people understand all the different things that were happening uh, as part of this process. And, you know, again, picking up on what I mentioned before about how so many things had to align and so many stars had to, had to fall into place in order for this to work out the way it did. And one of those was being fortunate enough to be married to my wife, Sarah, you know, who happened to be also an attorney and had worked at a large corporate law firm um, in Cincinnati. And so she understood, you know, what this, uh, what this uh, process was like, you know, and under was very supportive of it and also agreed, you know, that this was this was something that we needed to be doing something about. This was bad. You know, this was a public health problem. You know, we had, to, as, as you see in the film and I mentioned in the book, you know, we, all three of my sons grew up during this case. Uh, my oldest son had been born right before, you know, just a couple months before Mr. Tennant picked up the phone and gave me a call. So, you know, they, they got to live through this. And, you know, I think that made the time that we got to spend uh, together a lot more special, you know, and valuable. But, you know, they've, they also got to experience uh, this whole process. And 
you know, I've now got uh, two of two of my three sons talking about wanting to go to law school. So we'll, we'll see. But, you know, I think one of the, the most memorable events recently and, you know, for us was all of, all of us getting to sit down and watch the film Dark Waters uh, when it had been put together and see it for the first time. And having my three sons sitting in front in front of my wife and I turn around periodically during the movie and say, oh, wow. So that's <laughs> what was going on. You know, that that uh, they they finally got to see that history put together. And and as you see in the book, I mean, I dedicated the book to 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 them. Uh, it's just so I, w- I wanted them to understand, you know, what they had been a part of for so many years. Now, part of the reason I'm asking is my own personal choices. And also a lot of people, when I talk to them about, uh, they come to me and they say, you know, what are some things that I could do? And I'll, I'll walk them through a process of coming up with things. And they think, yeah, but I can't do that because it'll take time away from someone. But I think that there's a difference. I think that supporting people through challenges is something that brings people together. And sometimes that does mean a little less time with someone, but it often can mean more time with different people or more time with a smaller group of people, even if not the extended group, but you've, you've, for you, it's on a different scale. I mean, that was really, I don't know to what extent you knew you're getting, yeah, it's, it sounds like you knew what you're getting into, but still it must've been difficult. Well, you know, it, it, it evolved, you know, again, when Mr. Tennant walked through my door in 1998, I didn't really understand the full scope of what this would evolve into. And you know, we only started to get sort of glimpses of that as it happened. And as these, as we started to learn about the scope of it and, and see the kind of forces we were up against and dealing with and to, you know, just sort of watch that unfold and, and you know, to get to a point where you realize, you know, this is this is the way it's going to be, and this is what it's going to take to to move through it. It was tremendous that the the folks that put the film together, Dark Waters, you know, came out and met with us, spent time with the family, with the boys, with Sarah, and um, you know, I think even after meeting Sarah, you know, just wanted to make sure that there was somebody that really uh, we were, was able to capture, you know, her personality and her her involvement in you know this whole story, and it was. Terrific. They were able to get Anne Hathaway, you know, to, to come play that role because of how important it was. So that was, I think, incredible that they were able to do that. I have to ask, people are only hearing us. They're not seeing the video. But when they were watching the movie, did they, Ruffalo has gotten some things about you that like, you know, I didn't know you when I saw the movie. And now I see some things. I'm like, he really got some things did he spend time with you? He did. He, uh, yeah, he flew out and we spent a lot of time together. And, you know, a lot of the movie was was filmed in in our offices, in our law firm in Cincinnati. And I got to watch and, you know, help with the, the whole process as it was as it was going on. And so did the boys and Sarah as well. And Anne Hathaway came out and that was Sarah. And, um, you know, I, I can't I can't think of a nicer group of people and more mm-hmm. down to earth, you know, Mark was tremendous in wanting to make sure that, um, you know, this, the movie was, was done in a way that really captured the real people in that community and, and including us as well. And uh, I've had several people make that comment, you know, even my sons, when they were watching the movie, they turned around and said, well, he's got you down pretty well. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have to imagine that, I mean, they'd have to be genuine. I mean, this is not going to, I mean, the movie's got great reviews. I highly recommend it. It's not going to make the Avengers kind of money. So if he's doing it, he's, it's, I mean, I know this, this fits in with what, I mean, outside the Avengers stuff, this is what he does. I haven't met him yet, but it must've been from the heart from him and must've been for everyone. 
Absolutely. In fact, you know, he reached out to me after after uh, coming across the article that Nathaniel Rich published in the New York Times Magazine back in 2016, which I'll link to. Yeah, yeah that was called the, the the lawyer who became Dupont's worst nightmare, and that had really kind of laid out this story for the first time in a really comprehensive way. I think that that really alerted people to the fact this was not something just happening in West Virginia. This was really a bigger problem. And when, when Mark read that, you know, he reached out saying, how could this be happening? You know, how, how is this happening in the United States, something on a scale like this, yet he'd never heard of it. Nobody was talking about it. Why was, why was nobody aware of this? And how can we bring the story out to the public in a way that people really understand that it, that it impacts all of us? And I think, you know, he was passionate from the beginning, you know, to, to do that and yeah, that's why I agreed to work with with that group, you know, because they were doing it for the right reasons and they did a tremendous job uh, in getting the right people together to do it. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, on your part, on everyone's part, it's like not a reluctant, I mean, you talked about the interview with the New York Times was, you're like, do I really want to do this? And flying all around the world, it's like, do I really want to do it? But I feel like a, this mission driven that, and, and, and you didn't grow up that way. I don't think anyone would have predicted that this would have happened to you there's no self-aggrandizement here. In fact, if I, I would imagine you'd do the opposite if you could. Everything about you is the opposite, if I read you right. Yeah, I don't, I don't like, frankly, being... I, I don't like necessarily even being out speaking publicly and doing those kinds of things. I mean, I do it because I think that is what needs to be done. And I think it's important to do. But I, I don't like... I, I'd rather be in the background watching and listening to folks. And that's just, just my personality is... is is not to be in the front and center like that. You know, I, I do it to the extent I think we need to, uh, to get information out and to help people understand all this, but uh, not does not come naturally. There's a couple of characters in the book that I was curious about. Well, there's a missing character, which is the actual decision makers at DuPont. And I take it, I mean, I guess you got to talk to the CEO, but even it sounded like he was surrounded by uh, plausible deniability. and. There was another character, Larry Jensen, never made eye contact with you. And at, at some point you have a meal with him and you kind of chat, or I guess you had several, but you talked about one. It felt like there was a relationship there of the opposition, the, cause he showed up a lot. I mean, a lot of people that you worked with showed up a lot too. What was, I mean, the people in DuPont, what was your read on them? The lawyers, but also, did you ever meet a decision maker, someone who said, who were behind some of the memos that you, you got to read? Yeah, that was a, it's a complex um, answer, you know, because DuPont is a very complex organization. There, there are thousands of people that work within that company. And as, as we saw, it was very difficult, you know, to, to actually figure out who was making what decisions. And a lot of folks, of course, didn't necessarily want to take responsibility for having made a decision. Oh, I only was deciding this piece, not that piece. I didn't realize that. And we saw, you know, once we started actually talking with folks within the company and looking through the documents that, you know, even some of the lawyers, you know, were trying to advise the company to do a certain thing, but business people were doing another. And, you know, it's part of this, part of this whole problem was this, this perception, I think, within the company that we can make these decisions 
and the negative consequences of them won't necessarily come back to me, the individual within the company. I'll be long gone or I'll be, I'll have retired and moved on to my board position in some other company by then. Um, and that is unfortunately kind of what happened. And in fact, there was even an article authored uh, by some folks um, with the University of Chicago and Harvard who, who focused on this very process of, you know, how are these decisions made within the company? And, you know, was it a rational business decision given the fact that didn't come back on them for 30, 40 years and profits continued to be made during that entire time? And then when it finally did hit, you know, uh, look at the amount of penalty that was paid to the US EPA it was fairly insignificant in, in comparison to the, the money that was continued to be made by continuing to use this chemical and continuing to pump it out into the environment. Even the settlements that eventually came years and years later, again, in comparison to the, the profit that was made and the amount of time that went past, you know, it's, uh, it, it has a lot of folks now questioning, do, do we need to be approaching this a different way so that there is less of a, an economic incentive for people to do this in the future? And hopefully that happens. Yeah, I've taught some classes on systems thinking and systems behavior, and it feels like there's a broken system and they're... The EPA, I mean, the regulatory capture is just sickening of the rotating door or the revolving door. And I guess Edwards Deming is one of my heroes. He said, a bad system beats a good person every time. And if the incentives are in place for people to do that, it's a lot of people are going to respond to the incentives around them. Yeah, you know, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to make sure I did the book, Exposure as well, is just to, to explain or at least highlight what actually happens and what actually goes on with some of these federal and state regulatory agencies mm -hmm. and the way in which this really works. Uh, because I think a lot of folks just assume, you know, well, you've got regulators on this side of the, of the equation and you've got the business people over here and, and, you know, they're not necessarily always all that separate. And uh, like you say, the revolving door, unfortunately, still swinging in, in a lot of places. And I highlighted a couple of those. Um, you know, what was going on in the state of West Virginia, where DuPont lawyers who helped, you know, negotiate issues involving this very problem with this very chemical left, you know, the private law firm and went and re to run the, the state of West Virginia's EPA and how we had similar issues in Minnesota, you know, with 3M, uh, former 3M folks at the state agency. And then what you see in the U.S. EPA, where former U.S. EPA personnel are then hired by DuPont to, to help negotiate deals with the U.S. EPA. So it's, it's uh, hoping just, I hope that the more people talk about this and at least highlight that this happens, the more likely we are to, to avoid these kinds of problems or at least be aware that they're happening so that people can take the appropriate steps uh, to make sure they, they're, they're prepared for, for what really is going to happen. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people know about these issues. I mean, you must have, you weren't like a babe in the woods at the beginning, but it was much greater than you expected, is my read. Yeah, I mean, uh, I understood to some degree that this kind of thing went on, but I guess uh, I was still nevertheless surprised by the extent of it and the scope of it. And frankly, the effectiveness of it and the ability despite the fact that we were talking about it, you know, the fact that this was happening at the state of West Virginia, and it was even being discussed in the newspaper, that nevertheless, people just kind of shrugged their heads and said, ah, well, you know, 
That's that's what happens. And weren't outraged that these kinds of things were happening. I think, again, the, the, the more people talk about it and at least are aware it's happening, maybe we can make some steps toward, towards fixing that system. I guess talking about people responding to incentives, uh, in, in the movie, there's a very powerful scene that in the book you talked about when, when your parents said, are you sure you want to stay at the DuPont Hotel? And I think before you, this is my read of it. Tell me if I get it about right. Before you go there, you're thinking, it's just a hotel. And then when you're there, you're like, you're thinking, well, people are, if I was out of the picture, that would solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. And you've seen a lot of people doing things that you wouldn't do, but once they're in that situation, they do what seems natural to them. And I thought when I saw the movie, they were overplaying it because like turning the car keys at like, <gasps> but when you were talking about, maybe they were dramatizing it a bit more. I'm not sure how you, if you felt like uh, as it showed there, but I can certainly imagine you not sleeping the night before and being concerned of our, how, to what extent will people respond to their incentives and see how easily this could solve the problems? Yeah. I, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> As you pointed out, I mean, this this is that was based on something that really happened. I mean, I was I had gone to take the deposition of the company's CEO, and was actually there staying at the Dupont Hotel in downtown Wilmington. Really hadn't thought about it. I just had picked whatever hotel had availability and was staying there, and had uh, was preparing that night, and actually had gotten on the phone with my parents who. We're asking, where was I? You know, what was going on? And I explained and they started saying, well, why are you there? <laughs> Did you think about that? And, and you're deposing who and, and who else is there with you? You know, who came with you and who else has all these documents? And I, and I well, it was just me and I, I've got them, you know, just I, I'm the only one. And so it, it, it got me thinking that, uh, about that. And then when the deposition was over and as you see in the film, you know, I spent most of the deposition making sure that the CEO had seen all of the internal documents and had was well aware of what was actually in the company's files by the time that deposition was over so that he could no longer stand up at board meetings or public shareholder meetings and say there was no evidence of this. He would have seen it at the end of that deposition. I, I think folks from the other side weren't too happy with that when I was done and I picked up on that vibe as I was walking back to the parking garage and thinking about that very thing as, you know, my, my car being the only one there at the, in, in the lot. So, you know, that's, those were real thoughts and real, real concerns. And, you know, I, I thought back to what the company was willing to do, you know, for example, going and getting a gag order to try to stop me from even talking with the US EPA, which was rather outrageous. Um, yet, you know, you think about somebody willing to, to go to those extremes and, you know, seeing the kinds of uh, communications that were going on, uh, you know, through their PR department, you know, when media would would dare to report something or mention the Teflon brand name, you know, the sort of pressure that came to bear on those who spoke out. So those those were things that really kind of came home uh, that day as I was walking in the parking garage. It also reminds me of you mentioning how the uh, the CEO, Chad Holiday was so affable. And at the end, you felt like he, he genuinely was thanked you. And I was trying to think, thank you for, for making him aware of something. Now, does that mean he can make better decisions or to thank you for being professional? Because I would think you just weakened his hand or you know constrained him to act more lawfully. 
Well, you know, I think it was a combination of things. You have to keep in mind that this this individual was the one that was being propped up in front of shareholders and the press and the SEC, you know, to make very bold statements that the company was not aware of any adverse health effects and had no information. And so, you know, this was the individual that was being told to go up and make these statements. And, you know, I'm sure that it was uh, appreciated (laughs) to know whether or not uh, those statements were in fact accurate and whether that was something he should keep doing. You know, it wasn't short. It wasn't all that long after that deposition that we were able to to settle that case. I guess also when I was reading about the CEO early in my career, I started my first company, and it made me start thinking about we had a bunch of manufacturing stuff and some engineering, and we had to order some stuff that we really needed fast, and we needed it like we we didn't care how it was done, just get it done. And I was trying to empathize with the people on the Dupont side. It's uncomfortable, but. You know, when I was when I was ordering stuff, like we had to get these photographic prints made, and I don't know what kind of chemicals they're using. I don't really think about it. I don't really care. I figure that you're doing your job. You know how to do it well, and just give me the stuff as quick as possible. We really need a rush order. What I'm actually thinking though is I'm thinking about my customer, and I want to serve my customer very well. And I started thinking, all right, so Sam Dupont, and I got this stuff, this Teflon, and it works really well. People really like it. They're buying it like crazy and making a billion dollars a year. That that. People aren't forced to buy it. They're buying it because it's good for them. And I got some engineers and some scientists who are kind of like, I, I think they should be know how to make stuff safe. I don't know. I, I guess I'm trying to play around with like the, on the business side. I guess I've been in a place where I felt like in order to help those people over there, I need to these people over here do their job and just do it. It's so easy to say the other guys are doing terrible things. It must be bad people. And they're probably not bad people. Well, you know, I, again, I think it's a complex, a complex question with a complex answer. But what we see, and, and frankly, when we laid the story out to juries and showed them, you know, what decisions were being made by who and when, uh, you know, the fact that, for example, I think, as you mentioned, you know, you had this meeting in 1984 where folks were, were aware, you know, that this stuff was getting out into people's drinking water. It was toxic. It could build up. It was a problem chemical. And there were potential alternatives they could have switched to at that point. And the concern being, of course, you know, they, they were going to start increasing potentially production because it was the products were selling well. That that was a decision point where people could have made a very different decision. And the ultimate decision was made, no, let's keep using it. In fact, let's not only keep using it, uh, let's increase our emissions and actually pump more of it into the environment. And not only that, you know, that happened throughout the 1990s, even at the point where the 3M company, who had been the maker of the chemical and selling it to DuPont, when they finally pulled the plug and said, we're not going to make this anymore. Again, the company could have made the same decision and said, oh, this is not environmentally sound. There are problems. We need to be switching to these alternatives, which we had identified decades ago. No. Instead, They saw it as a market opportunity to jump in and be the supplier now of that chemical. And they did. They started making it themselves in North Carolina and started pumping even more out. And now they weren't just a user. They were also the manufacturer and started going out and actively trying to to increase the amount of, of sales of this material. So, you know, it's that kind of story that was laid out to the jury and uh, the juries in 
you know, in, in several cases came back and held, not only was the company liable for that, but punitive damages, you know, that the company had acted with conscious disregard of the risks in what it did. So I, I think that's, um, juries had spent weeks, you know, looking at all of that history, all of the decisions that were made and said, you know, this is a company that actively, consciously disregarded the risks and went ahead and did something that not only resulted in environmental contamination, but caused people to have cancer. And, uh, you know, the, now we've got thousands of people that have been injured by it. So, again, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's that fact pattern and that decision making that uh, convinced us there was a real problem here and something that, uh, you know, we as a, as, as a law firm, you know, were willing to take on and actually pursue for as long as we did because these were such bad facts. And now I have to jump to, okay, so all these problems, the close of the book is about two years ago and you start taking on a much larger class action, which I presume, actually, when you started talking about your sons going into law school, I was thinking, with how long that case is probably going to go, are they going to, are they thinking about taking up your case? Do you expect, I mean, it feels like the next case or the current case, I guess, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm guessing it would, it might change some cultural perspectives on maybe making, I guess there was some, I I didn't get all the history right, but the C8, these chemicals were kind of grandfathered in after the EPA said you have to, like now you have to prove stuff is safe, I think. But at that time you didn't. But it sounds like there's a lot of loopholes and it's there's a lot of stuff that we allow here that Europe wouldn't allow, for example. In the US, you know, the first the US EPA didn't even come into existence until 1970. And the first federal laws that really focused on requiring data to show the, the safety of chemicals before they come out onto the market, that, that law first came out in 1976. This particular chemical that was the focus of dark waters in the book is what PFOA started being manufactured right after World War II. So and it had been in use for decades when those first laws came into play. And when those laws first came out, they really focused more on new chemicals from that point forward. And for these existing chemicals like PFOA, and I'm kind of oversimplifying here, but the law basically said it was up to the companies making or using those existing chemicals to tell the EPA if there was information that they had suggesting they posed a a substantial risk to human health or the environment, essentially left up to the company to tell EPA. And what we saw here was a a great example and one that's been cited since, Mm -hmm. ever since, uh, of why that system didn't work. (laughs) Because you had company that had information showing a, a, a real substantial risk to human health and the environment that simply didn't report it and simply chose not to disclose that information. So this whole case has been used as an example of really why those laws needed to be changed. And in 2016, that law was amended to try to require a little more information up front. I think the jury's still out on what, how well those amendments worked. But even to this day, you know, we treat environmental chemicals, things we're exposed to in the environment, very different than chemicals that we go out and buy in pharmaceuticals or drugs. In the case of drugs or pharmaceuticals, yeah, you do have to prove they're safe before they go out onto the market. But a chemical like this, PFOA, that's in the environment, that nevertheless gets in our water, 
gets in our blood, we might as well be taking it as if it's a pill or a drug. That is dealt with a completely different way. And there, basically, the, the sort of default rule in the U.S. is that the chemical is kind of deemed innocent until proven guilty. And it's up to the people who've been exposed. They have the burden to come in and say, this chemical can cause harm. Here's how it's done. They have the burden to prove that, not the other way around. It's not that the chemical company has to prove it's safe. It creates incredible problems for people in situations like this, where they find out they've been exposed to this stuff. It's in their blood. It's in their water. Yet they're being told they have the burden to prove whether the chemical is harmful or not. And the company can sit back and not do any studies and simply say, there is no evidence that it causes harm. And that's what's been happening. As we finally got the story out about PFOA and steps were taken to finally phase that one out and stop manufacturing that chemical. Well, what happened? The company simply tweaked them a little, like DuPont. Instead of making PFOA, they brought out a new chemical. Instead of one that had eight carbons attached to fluorine, a C8, they knocked two carbons off. Suddenly, it's a C6, and they claimed it's a new chemical called Gen X that replaces PFOA. And when Gen X then showed up in the drinking water outside the plant, make the plant that DuPont was making it at in North Carolina, what was the community told? There's no evidence that this chemical causes any harm. You, community, you have to prove that this thing is harmful to you. So looking at the way this worked, I took a step back and said, you know, is there a better way to be doing this? You know, if, if these companies are going to keep pumping these things out and changing them and creating hundreds, now we know there are hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals in this class of per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, PFAS. PFOA is just one of them. There's hundreds or thousands of them out there. And the companies, though, are sitting back saying, all of the health data, that was all on PFOA. None of it, you can't prove these others cause any harm. And we're not going to do the studies that say one way or the other. So the idea behind what the new lawsuit I filed was to say, look, if you're going to expose people to these things, and you're going to say, though, that there's no evidence they cause harm, but also not do the studies, we're going to have hopefully a court say, you, chemical companies who make these, you should have to pay for the science and the studies to be done, independent scientists, to confirm it and explain exactly what these chemicals are doing to people. The exposed people shouldn't have to pay to do those studies. They shouldn't have to do what we saw in dark waters. And I talk about in the book where it took years, tens of thousands of people, $100 million to, to do these massive studies just to prove that one chemical was harmful, even though we'd already seen it in the company's own documents. We had to go at, nevertheless, prove it. Uh, with, with these human studies. Now we're hearing that we have to do that for all of these other ones now too. And so the idea is uh, hopefully that we will find a way to, to force those companies to have to pay for that. And so that case that was filed at the end of 2018, not surprisingly, the companies, as you can imagine, filed motions to have it thrown out saying, you can't do this under US law. The judge denied those motions. And now we're fighting over whether or not we can proceed as a class action on behalf of everyone in the country who has these chemicals in their blood. And as you can imagine, the companies on the other side are, are, are opposing that. And one of the arguments is there's so many people 
that the, you can't possibly bring this as a class. In other words, we've, we've exposed, because we've been successful in exposing everyone, we can't be held liable. The more we expose, the less liable we are. So it's rather ironic. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. This book, I think it says somewhere on the cover, it's a David and Goliath story. And now it's like, it was David and Goliath when it was you and, and uh, Earl. Then it was David and Goliath when it was you and the community. Oh yeah, that's the book. I guess it was part one was uh, the farmer. Then part two was, I think the town. Part three was the world. You're, I guess every time you, every step you take, it seems to be what you need to take it to the next level. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, this this situation continues even after everything that was done to confirm, you know, the the health effects for example of PFOA. In the United States, we still do not have a national drinking water limit for PFOA and you know that regulatory process is still grinding along at this glacial pace. It was just a couple of weeks ago. It was actually the last day of the last administration where the EPA announced finally that it would move forward to set a national drinking water number, but that'll likely take several more years. So, you know, you've got this very slow moving process. And so now what we're seeing are a lot of, uh, a lot of folks and a lot of communities across the country that are realizing this problem and seeing, you know, that still not much is being done, demanding legislation and action be taken. So we're seeing federal legislation being proposed for the first time, you know, to try to address these chemicals in a comprehensive way. We saw the new US EPA administrator who's um, going through confirmation hearings mentioning that these PFOS chemicals are a priority, you know, for the new administration. So you have to keep in mind, this is a problem, though, that has gone on for decades through multiple administrations. It involves these major systemic problems we've been talking about, not just the regulatory problems, but the way our legal system is set up and who has the burden of proof, the way science is developed, the way our laws are set. So all of these sort of combine to create this current problem. But I'm optimistic that uh, hopefully I think there's enough information getting out now about this, particularly with the film the documentary, The Devil We Know, and the book, and all of this finally getting out and people starting to talk about this, uh, I think there's momentum to finally get something to, to change. Yeah. I'll also add General Lloyd Austin, or I guess I shouldn't say General, the now Secretary of Defense. He, I'm proud that he wrote a blurb for my, for my leadership book, which is great. And so I was watching him, his confirmation, and one of the senators asked him about forever chemicals and because they're all over military bases. And he answered that that would be a priority as well there. So that's another place where it's shown up. Yeah, it's it's a particular issue outside of Department of Defense facilities because, you know, PFOA in, in the, the situation we're talking about here was used at the plant in West Virginia to make things like Teflon. 
but PFOA was used in a lot of other products, you know, and things like stain resistant, waterproof clothing, carpeting, fast food wrappers, packaging, and the related chemical, the 3M made called PFOS was used in Scotchgard in things like firefighting foams. And what, what we saw happen was that the Department of Defense realized that, that firefighting foam using PFOS chemicals had been used for decades at military bases all over the country, were training exercises at airports and um, at, at airports also and fire stations all across the country. And so Department of Defense started going out and sampling outside all of these different facilities all over the country. And since late 2016, it's almost every day that somebody is waking up to find out these chemicals are in their drinking water. And the Department of Defense has been under a lot of pressure to, to address this as well. And one of the things, though, that they've been, they've been saying in response is that they allegedly can't because the chemicals aren't regulated yet under the federal law. And their budgeting process requires them to only clean up and address regulated material. So it's sort of this catch-22 that communities are dealing with that are outside these military bases where uh, first they're, you know, they're being told it's not regulated. And then the Department of Defense saying, well, we're not going to clean it up or we're not required to because it's not regulated. So it's, it's a real problem and one that's really prompting legislators and lawmakers all over the country now to say, we've got to find a way to fix this. Another defense, they often would say that there was no alternatives. And you pointed out that there were alternatives. Also, something you didn't mention was that we don't really need Teflon. I mean, Teflon just being one thing. Some of these things we don't necessarily need at all and might not even be making our lives better for even if there were no cost involved. Well, you know, there are a number of groups out there right now that are talking about this in, in terms of, you know, regrettable substitutions and that the, some of these new chemicals that are coming out in these products are maybe just as bad as the other ones. And, and also focusing on this concept of, you know, uh, necessary use and whether or not there are certain uses for these chemicals that really aren't necessary, you know, for certain types of products that aren't absolutely critical or, or you know, life, life-saving products, uh, do we really need these kinds of chemicals in them? So that, that kind of discussion and debate is definitely happening all over the country right now, all, all over the world, actually. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine, could I imagine, I can certainly imagine this world. Can I see the steps to get there where the burn, like if you want to bring something like this into existence, well, I guess beforehand, you don't know. But if you want to bring something new in, you have to, the burden of proof is on you to show it's safe. It would mean that we'd have a lot slower of what we call progress, but does that mean that we're having worse lives? Like if before we had Teflon, someone had to spend a lot of money and time to make sure that, that, that this wasn't going to happen. I don't see a lot of people saying, there's so much stuff sticking in my pans. It's worth it. Like just do whatever it takes to get me some nonstick cookware. I don't think that's such a bad world at all. If, if you have to prove that the stuff is safe before you, that anything is safe before you start introducing something that didn't exist in nature before. I mean, laws, I feel like the legal system evolves when there was no way to make something that would last for millions of years in the environment and take decades for your body to process it. In the meantime, building it up all that time. Well, part of the, part of the problem has been people weren't necessarily given a choice. You know, they weren't told 
that these products even contained these chemicals or were used, you know, in making with these chemicals. So nobody really knew when they were buying products or being that they were being exposed to this at all. And so I think one of the things that at least is starting to happen are people at least being starting to be given that choice and being told, here are where these products were used. Here are companies that are moving away from them that are switching to alternatives. So at least people can start making that choice because none of us had a choice. None of us were told, you know, or asked whether or not we wanted to have these chemicals in our, in our water, in our blood, whether we wanted our children being born with these chemicals already in their blood. None of us were, were asked or told that. And we certainly, you know, weren't given a choice. It's not like you could pick up the products on the shelf and see this referenced on the labels. And again, that's part of the problem with the fact that these things weren't regulated and still to this day. Uh, still are not adequately uh, regulated in a way that would give people a lot of information in that regard. And if they were regulated, I think a lot of people, I mean, the standard thing was like, what about jobs? And what about this community? And it sounds like even now there are a lot of people there who are like DuPont, you know, like that mayor you were talking about. They're like, I still think DuPont's a good corporate citizen and things like that. But if we did regulate, then I, I'm trying to imagine where I don't think people would say, I don't see it as a worse world. It's not like people wouldn't know what, how do, it's not that we wouldn't know what we were missing. It's that if before you wanted to introduce some space age thing, you had to prove that it was safe. That's not like destroying jobs. That's not, I don't see that as, as a problem. Well, I think that's what a lot of folks are talking about right now and, and asking, you know, to what extent, you know, should we, we be trying to change some of these legal standards or procedures in order to, to make sure things like this don't happen again? Uh, where we we aren't just assuming somebody else is taking care of this, somebody else is looking at it, and then finding out decades later that no, <laughs> you know, people weren't aware and weren't being told, and information was being withheld. And you know, we shouldn't have to to go through the kind of process you see depicted in Dark Waters. Uh, you know, that that takes twenty years, and having to, to to have people go through what they went through in those communities to have this kind of thing revealed um, and for people to finally take action. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that this story um, helps provide a, a good platform for that discussion and for people to, to be inspired to know things can change. And, you know, it, it happened here. Things are changing because of what, you know, one person, Mr. Tennant, standing up and speaking out or that community, you know, rallying together and saying, you know, we're not going to accept this, that we can actually get things changed. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm again, optimistic. I'm hopeful that we're going to see some real uh, regulatory and legal changes coming soon because of all this. I want to keep asking questions, but I'll, I'll wrap it up just for, for your time. And I want to add one thing and tell me if I've misstated it or if I, or if you might say it differently, that not only does it change the world, my read of your situation is that all of that, what you put into it, on a personal level and on a family level, you got back more than you put in. That for anyone out there who's thinking, is this really worth my time? I just really want to worry about my 401k and pay my mortgage. That I think that the outcome is worth it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would not change anything. And I, I got to meet some of the most incredible people uh, throughout this process. And, you know, I think, uh, I think everybody's better off for it in the end. And, you know, we have a I think people have Earl Tennant and his family to thank um, for, for doing what they did and Joe Kiger and the people in the community 
and all the people that frankly you know worked on this um, for as long as they did and uh, now the rest of the world is isn't knows about it and i'm hoping their story is inspiring to people that they can do the same thing yeah to all the people that I mentioned i'm going to add everyone who watched the movie and read the book because i look for role models and you're a fantastic role model i wish that situations like this didn't arise but they're all over the place and Thank you very much for for what you've done. I'm sure you weren't doing it for me, but I benefited from it in terms of my health and in terms of, of giving me more meaning and purpose in what I do. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. And thanks for the opportunity to, to have this discussion. People often call my not flying or taking two years to fill a load of trash. They call it extreme. Well, not by the standards of people like Robert. The more that I act, the more that I find people like him and the closer I feel to people like that. Mandela, Dr. King, people like that, historical figures as well. Maybe I could fantasize about living in a world where I could act with impunity, not caring who feels the consequences of my actions. But not really, because the longer that I live, the more that I mature, the more I find caring for others creates value, not ignoring them. In any case, I don't live in such a world. Everything I do connects me to others. I've come to find that that connection improves my life, even if it means not flying, not ordering takeout. I've got a long way to go to reach Robert's level of giving but also to his level of getting. He said he wouldn't change a thing. I can't put into words, and he struggled to put into words what came out in the book about his level of gratitude, acknowledgement, connection, what he owes to the people that he served and he helped. I believe that's available to all of us. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.